Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and I have on with us somebody I have been wanting you to all hear for many months, and he, we've finally been able to work it out that he's joining us. His name is Kevin Vallier. If you don't know Kevin, he is an associate professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University. He works primarily in political philosophy, ethics, political economy, and the philosophy of religion. He's the author of over 40 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, four edited volumes, and three books, the most recent of which is Must Politics Be War? Restoring Our Trust in the Open Society. Kevin's going to talk to us about several things, liberalism, religion, and of course, his new book. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. So you and I, uh, from time to time over the past few years, have gotten a chance to get together in person and have conversations about liberty and faith and, you know, what's gone on in the most you know recent year of our lives and kind of share a meal together. And I've always enjoyed sitting and talking with you. And I'm so glad to have some listeners to our conversation because <laughs> I always love to hear what you have to say. Oh, well, thank you. Um, so you've written a lot, as I just sort of stated in your introduction here, and you have a lot, you think about a lot. I mean, I'm like, I I don't take notes uh, when we go out for dinner, because that would seem a little bit weird. But I I wish I would bring a notebook and just like write down all the things you say, because, you know, I want to hear what you have to say. So um, (laughs) here here we go, we're going to record it. uh, And I want to talk to you about a number of things. And liberalism and religion is something that you have put together in a certain way and you're in the way that you defend how they can go together. So what are your views on liberalism and religion? It might be helpful to talk about what do you mean by liberalism and religion? Good. So with respect to liberalism, I do not think of it primarily as an ethos or a way of life or a celebration of autonomy in Uh, day-to-day experience. Rather, for me, liberalism is a kind of arrangement of a constitutional order. Uh, And in particular, what a liberal constitutional order does is that it preserves a great measure of liberty for people to live their own lives in their own way. So there's nothing about liberalism that suggests is a kind of personal ideal or doctrine. People with all kinds of personal ideals and doctrines can come to adopt a liberal constitutional order as their own. That's one of the virtues of it. Uh, Because a liberal constitutional order doesn't take sides in really important disputes, that allows people from multiple perspectives with different ideals and values to be liberal and to uh, be friends of the liberal order that they share with those who are different from them. So I'm talking about liberal constitutional order. When I say that I'm a liberal, I mean that I adopt those institutions in my politics and economics as my own. Religion is much harder. I don't really know a good, universal, timeless, transcendental definition of religion. Um, But one thing we could focus on a bit is monotheistic religion, um, because it tends to be monotheistic religion that raises questions about the compatibility of the faith with, with liberal order, because the West tends to be the liberal orders, and they're the ones who tend to have the monotheistic religion. So it might help to focus a little bit. Um, And I think of, you know, the aim of all monotheistic religions is to love God, to love others, and to do what God asks of us, and to be grateful to him, um, and to get to know him. 
Um, and so everything that we do in monotheistic religions is aimed at that. Worship, service, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, all of those practices or disciplines are aimed at coming to know God. So the real conflict in the West is between people of sincere monotheistic religious faith and a liberal constitutional order, because there are some ways in which a liberal constitutional order tells monotheistic people of faith that there's certain ways they can't live out their faith. And different liberals who think about the constitutional order differently have different views about how demanding liberal order is of people of monotheistic faith. Uh, and I could say more about that if you'd, if you'd like. What would be some examples maybe of what what an illiberal constitutional order might look like, mm -hmm. uh, things that would kind of violate what you you and I probably both would say is this is a liberal order. Sure. So, so think about an order with an, a coercively established religion where there's only one religion that's legal or at least one that the state gives preference to, that it forces people to support, and maybe even that it forces people to participate in or be members of. Alternatively, you might have a secularist establishment where a religion or a group of religions or all religions are prohibited and that people are forced to espouse atheism. So what makes a non-liberal order what it is, is that it adopts a particular doctrine or ideal as official and true, and then imposes on everybody else. So it's not an order that allows people with different ideals and comprehensive doctrines and so on mm -hmm. uh, to live out their own lives. It's a sectarian regime, for lack of a better term. Yeah. What do you think of uh, Jim Wallace's statement that faith is personal, but it's never private? Because, you know, there's a lot of evangelicals who look at their beliefs as under attack. And even though there's this, you know, in the United States, there's there's no official legal, at least broadly speaking, there's no legal reason for them to fear worshiping and living out their lives as Christians. At the same time, what they do as Christians has ramifications in the marketplace, has ramifications in medicine, all kinds of things. And, you know, there's, there's kind of that belief system versus lifestyle or, you know, worldview and how we act as Christians yes. or as people of faith, even in general. Good. So this, this gets into one of the sort of dynamics of conflict between liberalism and, uh, and religion. As I described liberalism early on as a constitutional order, it doesn't have anything to say about how citizens should behave themselves except to affirm and not violate that order. So all that liberalism as such, as I understand it, requires of people of faith is to not try to coercively impose their religion on others. And while I think that is difficult for certain sorts of Muslim, I don't think it's hard for most Muslims, and I don't think it's really hard for Christians or Jews. However, there are those who see as part of liberal constitutional order a deep commitment to democracy, which, I mean, I, I'm a small D Democrat, but, um, but it's so deep that they think, well, there's a curtain kind of ethics of citizenship. There's a way to be a good citizen that involves very concrete and specific kinds of self-restraints. And the model for this is how we think about the appropriate behavior, say, of a Supreme Court justice. If Scalia, or, you know, I guess Gorsuch now, although he's not Catholic, so this case doesn't work as well, let's shift to Roberts. Suppose um, that Roberts were to say, well, I'm going to appeal to a papal encyclical in my Supreme Court decision. People think, and I think, that would be completely inappropriate. What his goal is, is to maintain the sort of non-sectarian order, and that means to follow the norms of liberal constitutionalism and not try to impose his religion on others. That's exactly how progressive liberals in particular think 
about citizenship and religion and citizenship, that somehow by bringing your faith into politics, you're doing what Roberts is doing by bringing in the papal encyclical, right? You're, in, you're threatening to impose your faith on others. You're not reasoning in ways that others can share or understand. You're kind of insisting on yourself. You're putting yourself above others and you're being disrespectful and uncivil. And so that's the reason that people think liberalism requires what's called the privatization of religion. Um, because the thought is that they liberals say, oh, good citizenship means that you don't bring your religion into your politics. All of my work in liberalism or in religion is to show that that isn't so and that the ethics of citizenship that many liberals adopt just is not an implication of their deeper commitments to freedom and equality. So what is your approach or perspective on the very popular sentiment, separation of church and state? So I like to distinguish really sharply between separating religion and politics and separating church and state. So for me, there is a fundamental liberal principle of separating church and state, which just says, don't coercively impose a particular religious or secular doctrine on others by force. And second, don't tax people to fund that institution. Because you might think like the Anglican church, like you tax people to fund it, but it can't tell you what to do very much. But I think we should also reject that, that taxpayer funds are used to advance a particular religious or secular goal. So that's the sense in which I separate church and state. But that doesn't mean that, say, voters in their lives can't bring their religious convictions to bear in democratic politics. So there's a really big difference, I think, between separating church and state and separating religion and politics. And we shouldn't separate religion and politics as Christians. But we should, I think, separate church and state out of love for the neighbor and trying to live by the golden rule and other kinds of norms. Do you think that liberalism is hostile to Christianity in particular? I mean, it depends on the liberalism. Historically, it was liberalism on the European continent that was fiercely anti-clerical in that they opposed uh, established religions, particularly Catholicism. Anglo-American liberalism has tended to be different, much more tolerant of faith, and even many times uh, quite supportive of it. So I guess the way that I think about it is that if we're thinking about the kind of Anglo-American liberal constitutionalism, which principally includes just non-establishment and expansive protections for free exercise of religion like we have in the First Amendment uh, to the U.S. Constitution, then I think um, there is not a fundamental incompatibility between liberalism uh, and Christianity. However, many of the people who call themselves liberals because they adopt what I call a liberal ethos which I do think is incompatible with Christianity for the most part, then there is a direct cultural conflict. So you have people who support the liberal ethos of autonomy and do whatever you would like to do as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. And then Christian morality, which is far, far more demanding and complex and comprehensive. But if you're just talking about the kind of Anglo-American constitutionalism, a kind of free non-sectarian constitutional order, I do think Christians have very good reason to adopt and abide by those norms. Uh, if they can be maintained and stabilized, which, you know, is an important empirical question. Do you, other than yourself, I suppose, uh, who do you see as any individuals as what you might call bastions of liberalism today or, or maybe recent memory? Uh, you mean among Christians? Uh, well, just anybody. I mean, our listeners would obviously hope to read a Christian who also defends these views, but I mean, even, even none. So um, there are a lot of people in the liberal tradition, as I understand it, um, and I'm thinking here, you know, in a compromised way, but the founders are, you know, the people who institutionalized the First Amendment, 
right? I mean, and and by adopting the First Amendment, they adopted the best protections for freedom of religion that we've pretty much ever seen. Um, so, you know, they're the ones who kind of did the creation of the institutions. But there are people before that who lay out the ideas like John Locke, who I think, you know, is super important as a kind of personal hero of mine. But, you know, you work your way down through the ages and you have people like, this case, a little complicated, but not as complicated as libertarians think of John Stuart Mill. People like Lord Acton, people like Tocqueville. And as you work your way down to the 20th century, I think there are more limited government liberals like Hayek, uh, James Buchanan, and pretty much most libertarians outside the Randians who seek these kind of constitutional protections. Now, there are also lots of progressive liberals or egalitarian liberals that do this, um, like John Rawls, who I'm prepared to defend as having a pretty religion-friendly view. Um, But among the more extensive state or egalitarian liberals, you start to see this suspicion of Christianity, partly on the grounds that Christianity promotes inequality um, between women and men, between priests and parishioners, between even sometimes confusedly, they think, between white people and people of color, where Christians tend to affirm certain kinds of hierarchy is legitimate and godly, and liberalism says everybody's equal and everyone should be treated the same. Uh, constitutional classical liberals have tended not to understand equality in a way that is hostile to Christianity, but the more extensive state liberals uh, have. Mm-hmm. Do you find any usefulness in not calling those people liberals anymore and calling them progressives? I mean, that's their off, yeah. their term they want anyway, which I think stacks the deck because the word progressive supposedly sounds better. But what do you think of that? Yeah, so um, it's complicated. I know a lot of extensive state liberals who I would say aren't really liberal anymore. But there are those I know who are also trying really hard to be good liberals. And so there's a kind of continuum. What makes the progressives progressive, in my view, and not liberal, is that they're essentially sectarians. They say, look, my interpretation of equality is the correct one, and I'm going to impose it on everyone else. And anyone who disagrees with my conception of equality is unreasonable. And so it's fine to establish my conception of equality as the dominant understanding. That's essentially a sectarian view. They just don't see it as sectarian because they call it equality. But in fact, it's, it's as sectarian as anything could be. So the more people start to think that their particular interpretation of equality is the only reasonable one and that anyone who dissents from it is irrational or immoral, then we have someone who's maybe without realizing it stopped being liberal and become a sectarian. But there are other liberals who try. And I think the previous generation of liberals, the post-war liberals, you know, the folks who all the way down to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in the early 90s was, were pushing uh, extensive religious exemptions for all kinds of people. Um, they're sort of the good extensive state liberals, but it's more my generation uh, as a 36, so I'm an old millennial, um, <laughs> that had become more hostile to liberal order. Actually, I think a lot of Christians on the right are becoming more hostile to liberal order as well, but I can hold off on that. So this topic is is very interesting to me personally. So I want to dwell on it just for a few more minutes here. Sure. You're talking to somebody and they are, they've, they've crossed the, we'll just call it a border. I know you talk sort of like a, like a spectrum there, but we'll, they've crossed the border into like, I'm a progressive and, and pretty illiberal and they don't, maybe they don't know it. Maybe they think they're being a good liberal and you're having this conversation with them yep. and you're, the word you just use is that, it, that you've crossed over into sectarianism. Yes. And I would st- my guess is they would find that 
they would be taken aback by that yes. uh, claim. That's and correct. they would want you, if they were in their best mood, they would want you to explain to them how you think yep. that they've done that yep. as opposed to just pushing the, maybe they just push the envelope to its logical conclusion. I mean, that's what most yep. people think they're doing when they get extreme. It's like, oh, well, it's just the logical conclusion right, uh, or whatever. So how would you... You know, I'm imagining this calm conversation with your colleagues yeah, yeah. at the lunch table or something. So, how would you tell? How would you explain to them how they've become sectarian and not maintained liberal order? The very first step would be to try to convince them that the doctrine of equality in itself is ambiguous in various respects. Um, and if that's the case, then reasonable people of goodwill can adopt different interpretations of equality um, and go in different directions with it. So, you know, one thing that the egalitarian liberal philosopher Amartya Sen an economist, he's a Nobel laureate in economics, has pointed out is that all political theories adopt a kind of equality. I mean, even libertarians are rigorous believers in equality, equal liberty rights, mm-hmm. right? So just about everybody believes in equality, but it can just go in lots of different directions. So when people say, I'm for equality, and that means restricting religious liberty in this or that way, then I just say, well, you need an additional argument. And then when people outline what that argument is, you'll see that it adopts certain kinds of sectarian premises, premises that people with different views uh, view as non-starters. For instance, certain claims about sexual identity that are actually metaphysical in nature and that aren't implications of the idea of equality. If you conjoin equality with the view, say, that um, what someone identifies as their identity is what makes them have that identity, then you say, okay, well, that's actually a pretty substantive and potentially objectionable claim. I mean, I can't change my identity by deciding to be a triangle. Um, there are certain limits on what I can identify as being uh, objective limits. So once people sort of realize or see that equality is an essentially contestable concept, and then you get them to give you the argument that their particular conception of equality is the correct one, then all the big substantive contestable premises will come out pretty quickly and you can sort of go after those. So it seems to me that the classical liberal political order is very, I would say, very much limited government position in, in a way. Is that, is that a good take on it? Yes, though not in quite the way that libertarians often think. Okay, um, well, elaborate on that because I think that, yeah. that, might be a good, that, that might be a good place to elaborate as well. So one insight that I I feel like I've been granted, but that a lot of libertarians want to resist, and it's not I'm not putting myself ahead of other libertarians. I've just been sort of blessed with teachers that have made certain things salient to me that most people don't realize, which is that you can be a sectarian about your political ideology as you can about your religion. So um, in the same way that someone can be a Christian sectarian and want to impose their Christianity on others, there is actually such a thing as being a libertarian sectarian. Yeah, what does that look like? Yeah, so think about you live in a society where 95% of people aren't libertarians, and so they don't think that taxation is always theft, for instance, as many libertarians do. Now, suppose you want to live on equal terms and respectful terms with them. Well, the libertarian will say, well, you know, look, we understand what justice is, and justice implies natural property rights, and natural property rights imply that taxation is theft unless someone's consented. And then they say, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take over the government and we're going to establish libertarian property rights. And then 95% of the people in that society say, this is a grave injustice. It's going to have these effects. You know, it expresses this kind of attitude towards others. It allows for all kinds of inequalities. Um, And then you think, okay, maybe I'm doing exactly what I think the Christian is doing and imposing Christianity on others. 
this raises a really important and difficult question, which is what would it be for the state to be neutral on ideological matters <laughs> and not just religious matters? I think we haven't totally figured out what that looks like yet because nobody thinks we should be trying to do it. I think it's fine for libertarians to be deeply committed libertarians, just like I think it's fine for Christians to be deeply committed Christians. Um, I just think that libertarians should start to think about their political ideology in the way that Christians think about their religious position. My first response to that would be, well, when I argue with a progressive over you know, the world, the, the country or political structure they want to live under, and I tell them what I would like to prefer, and they talk about, you know, we, we get into the whole like, well, yeah, but if we live in your world, this, and, and, and these people are going to stay poor or whatever, you know, that's the accusation. Right. And my common response is that, well, I can't live in your world the way I want to live, but you can live the way you want to live. Yeah. And you can have the sort of uh, agenda within, within, a, within the context of a libertarian order. Uh, you can have your equality with the people who want to have that such equality. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds like it's easier said than done, maybe. Yeah, it is. Um, so, so basically the way I think it works, shakes out in the end institutionally, is that you have a non-libertarian federalism which many libertarians would say is just libertarian. So like the idea is, you know, different states could adopt social democratic regimes if they wanted. As long as there's freedom of exit between these different political units, then um, I think it's far less objectionable. Now, many libertarians would say, oh, what you're describing is libertarianism. Well, if that's true, great. Then actually it's, that's a non-sectarian libertarianism. But if you say something like, no, we're going to have, you know, a central form of political organization that imposes the same you know, restrictions on taxation and regulation and so on on everyone. And we're not going to allow, say, counties to vary on uh, very much from this. Then I do think libertarians can start to see, okay, yeah, maybe I kind of am imposing my views on others. And it reveals a kind of internal tension in libertarian political theory between the elements that I think are sectarian and the elements that I think are deeply non-sectarian. I think libertarians could do better at distinguishing between when they're sort of saying my way or the highway and when they're saying live and let live. Because a lot of times libertarians think those are exactly the same thing. And all I'm pointing out is that they're not. Hmm. Well, I could have you on just for that conversation, but we'll have to, <laughs> we'll have to, ta we'll have to table that because that's, yeah. that's clearly, I would say, that's good advice. But understanding and fleshing that out is, is of course— It's hard. It's hard. It is. I mean, that's why it's an ongoing conversation, of course. I mean, that's um, actually, in a sense, what motivated me to write my current book. It was was precisely that. I mean, we'll get to talk about that in a bit, but um, yeah. Well, yeah, that's that that's question? up. That's up. Not quite next, but yeah, yeah, that's that's on my thing. I want I want to get your take on the uh, how do you, how do you read the current political climate in America? Yeah. So, um, what's going on as I see it is that both parties are moving away from an ideal of an open society where we respect multiple points of view and we allow people to openly contest one another with respect and civility, um, that we care about actually trusting people who are different from, from us and making peace with them, uh, and that we think everyone should be able to speak and have their own view, enter into societies, enter into free contracts and arrangements with one another, to have freedom of association, uh, and so on and so forth. On the right, this is because the move from, say, Reagan Republicanism to Trump Republicanism is a move from a more open, sort of optimistic free society to one that's more suspicious and closed of outsiders, both through free trade and through restrictions on immigration. But uh, the left, while it pays more lip service to the idea of an open society, is in some ways much worse. Um, they're not as bad on things like immigration 
Um, but there were some things like freedom of association. So they're increasing hostility to uh, religious exemptions uh, for, for traditional people of faith is fairly new and uh, quite, quite radical um, with some current presidential contenders. For instance, they're almost universal support for the Equality Act, which has no religious accommodations in it whatsoever. Um, it's actually, from a Christian perspective, pretty darn worrisome because it means basically in the commercial sphere, there's not going to be space for people who have traditional views about sexual morality. Whereas with Obama, Obama thought, no, 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 we really have to try. Now, he did a bad job in many cases with respect to the religious exemptions, but he was at least committed to giving it a shot. And before that, under Clinton, Clinton was actually good. I mean, they passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in 93, and it was had overwhelming support, and it protects pretty extensive religious exemptions. But then you have people like uh, Kamala Harris, who, you know, was questioning whether a judge should be a judge and also be a member of the Knights of Columbus, which is, you know, a pretty milquetoast Catholic organization, but it just teaches what the Catholic churches are always taught. I mean, she essentially applied a religious test whether someone could be a a political official. Um, And I think what you're going to see with the next democratic regime, and I agree with Roderick here, is revenge um, on Christians who uh, supported Trump. Um, I think there's going to be big new restrictions on religious freedom Hmm. um, and that people just aren't going to care because the secular folks on the left are going to see supporting Trump as so beyond the pale, so repulsive that anyone who did it deserves what they have coming to them. So yeah, I think the, if Elizabeth Warren is elected, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be bad for Christians. I think it's, it's not that Trump has been great, but um, on religious liberty issues that I think are absolutely vital um, he's farmed out judge appointments to pretty good people. And I think uh, libertarian Christians have reason to be relatively pleased with Trump's judicial appointments. So my take is that both sides are moving away from the open society, but in some respects, the moves on the left are much more ominous uh, and worrisome. I mean, in the end, Trump you know, says terrible things about immigrants, but he's not that much worse than Obama in practice. So even though he's paying less lip service to an open society, he hasn't actually succeeded in rendering it more closed um, very well. So, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of see the Democrats going in a pretty closed direction despite their rhetoric. So things are getting worse across the political spectrum. Um, open society is becoming less popular. Well, we're also more polarized. That's right. Um, That's you, right. You said people are less open, you know, of like immigrants and free trade. And I'm and, and in my head, I wanted to add, and I'll add it now, <laughs> uh, is that uh, they're also less open toward competing views. Yes, um, you know, or, or just understanding that, you know, just because you voted for or really, really want Elizabeth Warren to be the next president, that you must be, you know, a scoundrel and yeah. you know, an anti-American person. I'm like, That's come right. on. Like, she might be a foreboding opponent uh, for Christians, yeah. any religious person or whatever. If you're right, uh, but that doesn't mean that the person supporting her is terrible. No, so, that's one hundred percent true. Yeah, the polarization is is a big problem, and and I know you see that Christians and libertarians, uh, or Christian libertarians together, uh, can address these problems. And I think I think to some extent that's part of what your book talks about. So that's I think right. That's, a that's good right. Good way to talk about it. Hi, this is Carrie Baldwin of MereLiberty.com and a contributor here at the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you haven't heard, I'm debating Walter Block on the question of whether a woman has the right to evict or abort her fetus at any time during her pregnancy. This debate will be hosted by the Soho Forum at 3 p.m. on Sunday, December 8th at the Subculture Theater in New York City. Tickets for this event range from $12 to $24. Seating is limited and will likely sell out. 
Register now to reserve your seat. You can buy tickets at thesohoforum.org. To hear more about my position, you can visit my website at mereliberty.com slash abortion. Must Politics Be War? That's yes, the name that's of your book. book. I love I love that book title. Uh, I read a lot of books, and that's that's certainly one of the, the best titles I've read. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so when I was working my way through the libertarian movement when I in my late teens and early 20s, I got to know a lot of libertarian philosophers, and they're so super smart, and they have all kinds of super smart things to say. And I thought, well, you know, I as a political philosopher, I could continue to develop this view, but I didn't really feel like I had a whole lot to add. But then my advisor, Jerry Gauss, who's, who is a classical liberal, uh, asked me a question one day when early in grad school, because I was talking about secession and libertarians forming their own societies, and he said, isn't it kind of sad that your political ideology leads you to withdraw from others? And, you know, my teacher, you know, Jerry was a very secular person. But as a Christian, it, it hit me. I thought, no, I'm supposed to be loving and drawing near others regardless of their politics. So hmm. is there something wrong with the way that I'm thinking about my ideal uh, and how to live it out? And I started to think, well, you know, maybe there are also a part of political morality that doesn't just tell us what the true theory of justice is, which is what I take libertarianism to be. It's a kind of theory of justice and government uh, power. But there are also norms governing how to interact with and love and be reconciled with people who reject my political ideology. And I came to believe that this was really, in a certain way, a kind of extension of the Ministry of Reconciliation, um, where I read that broadly. It's not just announcing to people that we are reconciled with God, but it's bringing other people into the church. And that means forgiveness and drawing near. And that's what I, I see of as, as reconciliation. And so I started to think, okay, well, what would that mean for me as a Christian libertarian in democratic politics with people with people who are almost, almost no Christian libertarians? And so what became clear to me is that, well, if I want to reconcile with them, we need to be able to find political institutions that at least we can all find justifiable or tolerable to each of us, right? To try to say, well, what can be justified to the public as a whole, given that there's reasonable disagreement about not only the good life, but about justice as well. Uh, and what I decided was, well, what we really want to have is a regime where people with different attitudes and perspectives feel like they can trust each other. And that doesn't mean that the regime is perfectly good doesn't mean that the regime is perfectly just. It just means that the rules of that regime are not really truly beyond the pale for any of us, such that we can still live together and trust each other and cooperate, even if we're, none of us are getting everything we want out of that order. So I thought, well, you know, maybe this is a part of libertarian theory to develop, which is how do libertarians relate to non-libertarians? <laughs> no libertarian was talking about that question. Uh, assuming that not everyone becomes a libertarian, what are we to do with everyone in our lives who isn't a libertarian when we think about how to live together? And that's For many of us, that's everyone in our lives. Yes, right. <laughs> right. So the question became, what does Christian reconciliation look like in politics, knowing that not everyone is going to agree with us about libertarianism, that not everyone is going to think that initiating coercion is as deeply problematic as we do? even thinking that libertarianism is an extension of various of Jesus's teachings about nonviolence. Um, what do we do? How do we sacrificially love non-libertarians? What do we do? So this led me to the ideas of the later Rawls, who, you know, many libertarians know as an archenemy. Um, but 
my teacher, Jerry Gels, helped me to see that actually the framework of the later Rawls's thought um, was actually much more conducive to limited government views than anybody, even Rawls, thought. And the basic idea is this that Rawls has, which is that in a society that treats all as free and equal and that's stable in the right way, we want to ensure that the, our political institutions are one in which there can be what he called an overlapping consensus, meaning that people with different reasonable points of view about the good life could all endorse the basic elements of the regime. And that there's something kind of lovely about an overlapping consensus, which is that we're able to have stable cooperative relationships with others because we all think, look, we disagree about so much, but we all agree from our different perspectives on this particular regime. But the thing that Rawls did that was so tricky and problematic is that he said libertarians were unreasonable. And so they didn't have to be taken seriously, except in other respects, like respecting their basic rights. But his argument that libertarianism is unreasonable is pretty bad. Um, it's essentially that libertarians don't see, they see government like they see corporations and that government's supposed to represent the public in a way that corporations don't. But that insight can actually be integrated into libertarian thought with some, a little bit of difficulty, but not too much. But once you allow that there's reasonable disagreement, not just about, say, religion or the good life, but about politics, about ideology, about justice, then you think, okay, well, the things we're going to be able to overlap on are a lot more limited than, say, a Rawlsian state that engages in a massive amount of redistribution, regulation, and economic control. So the Rawlsian ideal of this overlapping consensus, once we include conservatives and libertarians, means that the only institutions we're going to be able to overlap one on are those that are fairly but not completely limited. So the order that we end up with is a classical liberal order, but it's not a fully libertarian order. And so I think Christian libertarians have to kind of sacrifice in a way. They have to say, look, what I want is libertarianism. I'm going to try to convince you of that. I'm going to try to live that out in my own life. But if we can reach an order that's pretty limited government, that doesn't engage in massively unjust wars, that doesn't massively violate civil liberties, that doesn't tax half of people's income away, I can live with the state out of love for others, at least some state. Now, most libertarians listening are like, oh, no, 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 no. But <laughs> remember, you're probably also Christians too, and you know that you can't insist on your own way as a Christian, right? So I'm just challenging you to apply that gospel reasoning to your politics as well. Now, it doesn't cost you a whole lot in one way, because you can still say libertarianism is true, here are the arguments. Because you do that with Christianity all the time. You preach the gospel. Just because you can't coercively impose the gospel doesn't mean that it's wrong, doesn't mean that it's insignificant, right? In the same way, just because you can't impose your libertarianism doesn't mean that it's insignificant, doesn't mean that it isn't true, doesn't mean it isn't vital for people to know. It just means if you want to live with non-libertarians, you've got to hold off to some degree. And I know that's a controversial point for libertarians, but I'm convinced that it's true, and I'm convinced that it's something that Christians uh, should take seriously. Well, I certainly take you seriously, but I do have a few objections. Uh, yes, the good, one, good. ones that I think might be overcomable, and some some of which might might be something I'll be wrestling with for months to come. Who knows? <laughs> uh, but the first thing that came to mind was, okay, fine, 
Christians ought to do this and be somewhat sacrificial. And there's a little bit of me that's like, well, of course, we can't have everything we want. You know, as anarchist as I would like the world to be uh, in sort of anarcho-capitalism, it's not going to happen in my or my child's lifetime. And therefore, I have to concede something. And so to some extent, it sounds like you're giving a very robust view of you're going to need to make concessions. And that's actually part of, you know, living out your faith in the gospel. That's right. The objection, I think, might come this way. However, yes, maybe, but I don't want to, and figuratively and maybe possibly literally, give up the farm of libertarianism because that means that doing so means I'm not defending the rights of my neighbor who may not agree yep. or who doesn't agree that this is a call for Christians to live sacrificially. Like, it's not a call for libertarians to live sacrificially. Yep. It might be a good um, self-interested, long-term thinking kind of way. Like, I I know you and I have talked about, yep. you know, the whole issue of climate change and how we yep. it might be more libertarian to concede some things. But in general... I have a hard time saying, well, yeah, yeah, great, Kevin. We need to we need to give up some things. And there's that sacrifice. I mean, any any married person who's been married for longer than six <laughs> minutes six minutes um has had understands this. That's great. So uh what what do you have to say to that? You Boom. know, it's, no, it's, I'm kidding. <laughs> the hard thing is that for any ideology or faith, there's somewhere where you have to say, No, I don't, I'm not, I can't sacrifice that much. All right. Um, there's always going to be a limit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to know in principle where that is. And in the book, I try to outline in a, it, as philosophically rigorous a way as I can uh, where that kind of line is. And a lot of it has to do with the category of the morally suboptimal. It's kind of weird where you think, well, there's what's the moral best? And then there's what's unacceptable. And What I'm saying is there's this kind of space in between where there are systems of rules where we can say, ah, these aren't the best rules and they're not even the most just rules, but I got to go along with them anyway because, geez, they're really pretty good. So for instance, like suppose we were to dramatically reduce mass incarceration, but your view about punishment means that we should really be using corporal punishment instead of putting people in prison at all. That's a case where I can see it's kind of tough for the Christian libertarian, right? The Christian libertarian wants to say, no, we're going to set the captives free. Um, this is locking people in cages is a gross injustice. So I, there, there, there are cases there where I, can, I see like, no, we've got to really insist on our own way because what's being done to these people is so bad. Um, mm-hmm. But there, are, and, and so there, I think there, there may be an issue. I think what it actually is worst with, when it comes to abortion. But I think there's other issues where it's more obvious, like taxes. Yeah. Suppose that the government just said, look, we're going to take 10% of your income. We're never going to take more. And we're not going to spend that on military conquest. In fact, we're going to have a pretty limited military. We're going to spend this primarily on caring for the infirm. Um, and the libertarian says, well, but it's not going to work very well, or it's going to atomize communities to some degree, but you know, it's 10%, you know, and you think, oh, other people, they can't even get on board because, you know, they're going to, they're going to think that private people can't provide healthcare through charity. There's just not going to be enough. So I think there are some times where, where it is clear that we need to make concessions. There are other cases when the threats are really, really severe, where we may just have to draw the line. So, for instance, I think this means that a huge amount of incarceration, a huge amount of war, a 
a huge amount of immigration restrictions actually are going to be beyond the pale for us. And so they're going to lack authority for us. But I think there are other things when it comes to, say, having a state at all, having a certain degree of taxation that goes actually goes to the poor, right, and not bureaucrats and not the rich and so on, um, where I think we do have to make concessions. So the main, I don't even think we have to concede a huge amount to the regulatory state, actually. So the main concession that Christian libertarians, I think, have to be prepared to make is to allow for uh, poverty-reducing social programs uh, that are taxpayer-funded. So that's the main place where I think sacrifice is going to be really important. See, that to me is probably the easiest place to, well, to give good. up. Yeah, I mean, agree. And I, <laughs> yeah. Well, and honestly, yeah. I mean, I'll support yeah. you on that particular point because yeah. to me, I often, I will often make the argument with people, you know, because it, it comes down to two things, Kevin. It comes down yeah. to who are going to build the roads and who's going to take care of the destitute. <laughs> right. And I'm like, well, and, and I take this logic from Ron Paul's uh, yep. revolution yep. Uh, where, where basically he says something along the lines of, well, Everyone, you know, clamors for the Clinton era. And he's like, all right, great, let's do that. Because the government was like, you know, like 75% smaller yeah, or something. And I'm thinking, you know what? If all the government the state does is build roads and keep people from being destitute, then then sign me up. Yeah. Because that's if that's a that's a far more libertarian world, even though it's not a purely libertarian world. So that's right. The the purely libertarian world. So I, I guess I can so, see so the public reason view I adopt, like the public yeah. reason liberalism, the view that I adopt in the book is actually pretty darn libertarian. It's just not completely. Yeah. So there's a, uh, the sad thing is it actually asks relatively less of libertarians than it asks of others. And that's actually one of the most powerful objections to the book, <laughs> uh, in my opinion. Um, yeah. Because there's a presumption against coercion. And when libertarians are so opposed to coercion that uh, they kind of keep the burden of proof from being met in lots of cases, um, particularly, I think, in... Uh, in terms of the most severe coercion that the state engages in uh, with respect to mass incarceration, war, and immigration restrictions. I can imagine someone like, you know, someone like me or someone who disagrees with you about this point, sitting down with you, having dinner and and saying, all right, fine, I kind of get it. You've convinced me that there's concessions to make, but you can't go out there and publicize this, Kevin, because what's going to happen is people, people are going to accuse... You can't trust people. Right. Well, what they're going to say is you're making a case for something that's not pure libertarianism and therefore you're, you're not representing well, you're not, you're, you're getting people to, I don't know, you're, you're watering it down or mm -hmm. all those kinds of like pure, maybe not purity aspects or maybe yeah. not like impure aspects of uh, advocacy, but I mean, yeah, on the one hand, sure, you're right. And I think a lot of libertarians would say, well, yeah, we always have to make concessions. Um, yeah. And at least I hope people listening. Principled that. concessions, not just pragmatic ones is one of the okay. things I'm saying, yeah. So, you're, so, I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, yeah, I'll give up raw milk if they bring the troops home. Like, you know, yeah. if, <laughs> but Good. some of these other ones are like, you know, we argue uh, on Facebook, you know, like, would you rather have this if you had to give up that? And yeah. libertarians, you know, they have these discussions and people are just like, un, just, unwilling to budge. And I mm -hmm. think, of course, you and I would both agree that you, you can't be unwilling to budge in life. That's right. Um, um, and certainly I mean, not in the face. Not principally. Yeah. So yeah. the principled objections, what are some things you have in mind there? I mean, what are, what would be like maybe two biggest objections to state action? I think you've mentioned one is uh, the incarceration state. What are, what are, what's another one or two? Um, well, the other one I, uh, another one I mentioned was um, Imperial Ventures. So, you know, large-scale military intervention. 
um, because that involves loss of life, that involves a huge amount of redistribution for things that don't directly benefit people and that are uh, apt to be misused. So that would be another one where I think the libertarian can kind of draw a line, although that's also a case where there's uh, a lot of overlap with people on the left, or at least when Republicans mm-hmm. were in power mm-hmm. on the left. Um, not to be mean, but, you know, any war movement going away under Obama still kind of hurts. Um, so, yeah, I would say the warfare state and the carceral state are the ones that respect for most people and also respect for libertarians means that those regimes need to be heavily, heavily reformed. So, so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, those would be some additional examples. Yeah, well, I think uh, that's certainly where a lot of libertarians start. I mean, that and they, they right. would probably throw in the they probably throw in the Fed at the at that point. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I think libertarians have to concede a bit there um, on the Fed because our oh, yeah? model of what will happen with the Fed is reasonably contestable among economists. And as a result, I don't think we can just say, "Well, you know, it's going to lead to a boom bust cycle." And then, like, ninety percent of macroeconomists are like, "No, no, it won't." So that would actually be abolishing the Fed, I think, actually would be insisting on our own way. However, however, if you can structure a federalist order and allow people freedom of exit between them, I do think there's a case to be made that libertarians have the authority to form a local political order with its own currency. It's just overturning the Fed right now, um, I think, is something that libertarians have to be willing to concede Um, because I think macro is just really, really, really hard. And it's hard to just say, look, I've seen the truth, okay? I've seen that the Austrian school is right about these things. I actually am kind of torn between Austrians and the market monetarism, like Scott Sumner. Um, I find it pretty difficult uh, to determine who's correct, but I do think there's so much reasonable contestation in macro that libertarians have just got to be prepared to to give a little on that. And I know that's, again, raise people's hackles, but just... yeah. You know, put well, yourself I'll, in the shoes of progressives and uh, and the and and conservatives who have to give up so much. Yeah, well, and I'll vouch for your credibility on understanding Austrian economics. I mean, you were you were pretty well steeped in it for for a number of years. And yes, so, yes. for those of you might maybe objecting that Kevin isn't quite familiar with it or uh, doesn't quite yeah. understand it, uh, he yeah. surely does. Uh, and you can yeah. you can check him out on that. It's a neat theory. It's a neat theory, and it seems to have some explanatory power. It's just. You know, there are some concerns, but I, my favorite non-Austrian macro guy is Scott Sumner. And as much as I love guys like Bob Murphy and Tom Woods, I think, you know, he's got some interesting counter arguments. So if, if the libertarians here who really want to get rid of the Fed, if you want to look at someone who's kind of pulled me away a little bit, you know, I just read the Money Illusion blog. And I think that will give you a sense of uh, another position that you're going to think is wrong, but like you think, okay, and like, this guy is, you know, pretty sensible when it comes to macro yeah. issues. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one, one objection on- And Krugman's well, just well, plain mean, you know, we got to dig on him a little <laughs> bit to build rapport, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, one little pushback on the Fed thing. So yeah, yeah, the yeah. Fed, the Fed is why we're able to have. I love, by the way, your your phraseology there, imperial ventures. Yeah, uh, and the Fed is a big enabler of that, and yep. I think that's another reason why that's important to people like, sure. uh, say, Tom Wood, Dave Smith, those guys. Yeah, no, I think that's. I, I mean, I I think that's it's a good argument. I mean, it's something that I take very seriously. The difficulty is that it also prevents the state from doing a lot of other things that other people want it to do like the welfare, like redistribution for the poor. 
Now, I think you could argue, well, you could have a gold standard in pretty extensive, uh, not extensive, but, you know, a hefty amount of um, redistribution. I mean, after all, states don't have their own central banks and they provide social welfare services. They can't just create debt whenever they want. And, you know, it's not like we didn't have a welfare state at all under the gold standard. So I think advocating for hard currency is not wrong or unreasonable. I just think that it's hard to insist on it with the same vehemence as opposing a war. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the compromise would be that the Fed is just legally unable to fund wars, however that would happen. I don't know. You well, know, yeah, you, could, out, you could limit it some, you could limit its power in various ways. I mean, if that's, if it, if your anti-Fed argument is heavily based on foreign wars, on yeah. foreign policy. That would be how you would get into limiting it, but yeah. you'd have to look into ways yeah. that, um, you know, maybe for instance, put certain conditions on treasury bonds or something like that that would restrict how the money could yeah. be redirected. I don't know. I mean, I haven't thought it through at all. Um, <laughs> just because the, the I just find that the macro issue is just so fantastically complicated because we're dealing with complex adaptive systems, many variables. One of the things that actually got me out of the hardcore Austrian business cycle theory was the late Hayek. I mean, later Hayek's work on complexity um, where I'm just not confident in any of my macroeconomic opinions beyond the really basic things. I don't know. You saw Krugman's tweet from a few days ago. It's, it's just in all caps. Debt is yeah. money we owe to ourselves. Debt is money we owe to ourselves. Debt is money we open to ourselves. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, people, you know, fist pound. I mean, he's a sectarian, you know? I mean, he doesn't respect people who disagree with him. He doesn't think there's reasonable disagreement about economics. He thinks all of his opponents are, are frauds and idiots and hacks. Um, that's, you don't want to be the Austrian Krugman, you know? Um, that's not, Christian don't want to act that way with his opponents, right? Even if you're right, you don't want to act that way. That's right. That's correct. So we would hate it. But there are libertarian Krugmans out there. I mean, and it's it's sad. Um, so remember, you know, we're we're here to love. You know, that's where we're on earth. You know, to love each other. So yeah, it's easy to forget. I forget it every day. Well, I think you and I have reflected in in personal correspondence about Second Corinthians five mm -hmm. uh, and the the passage, and you you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier. Uh, ministers of reconciliation, That's right? And I, how does that how does that passage uh, resonate with you with regard to how our posture is toward the world in in the political sphere? Yeah. So, um, you know, Raul, one of my favorite lines from Rawls's later work is he says that um, his version of liberalism, what he calls political liberalism applies the principle of toleration to philosophy itself. So it doesn't just say that we should tolerate other religions. We should tolerate other philosophies. When I think about the ministry of reconciliation, I think of it as a way not just of applying to preaching the gospel to others, bringing them into the faith, but to a wide range of our social activities, not just, you know, in our personal activities, but in our political activities. It has a sort of broader implication. If we're, we're trying to bring others into re relations of reconciliation and love, if we're trying to get people to participate in, you know, this is kind of Eastern Orthodox language, Trinitarian life together, right? The life of the Trinity, the mutual, eternal, uh, mutual love, right? Uh, and we're trying to do that in our political lives. We have to adopt a kind of principle of toleration and respect for differences. Because if the ultimate point of love, like part of love, is to unite with others, is to be in union with them, that we have to propose terms of life together that we can will together, that we can jointly accept. And I think that the ministry of reconciliation in politics then means trying to together discover the terms under which we can be reconciled to each other, even if that means that Christians have to give up some things, even if it means we can't structure the order around our faith, 
you know, that means the ministry of reconciliation itself means we're bringing everyone into a union of love and forgiveness and peace. And we can't just, we have to do that with Muslims and we have to do it with statists and, you know, but the cases are similar. Love does not impose itself, right? I mean, that's the basic idea. And so if we want to be Christians in our politics, that means that, you know, defend libertarianism, but also be prepared to uh, compromise and tolerate and to enter into relations of love and friendship with people who have different politics than you. So that would be the challenge that I would raise. I love it. So Kevin, you've launched a new website where you have some information about your books and your blog. Uh, Where can people reach you and what's on the horizon for you? Great. So a couple of things. First, kevinvalier.com. K-E-V-I-N-V is in Victor, A-L-L-I-E-R.com um, is my website. And you could find out a lot more about me there. And if you go to kevinvalier.com slash reconciled, you can go to my blog. And on my new blog, I talk a lot about these issues. I mean, it's, the blog is called Reconciled for a reason. I'd be looking at reconciliation in politics and economics and philosophy and, and theology. Just, just most of my work is going to be about, you know, how do we bring people together uh, how do we come to trust each other? How do we establish friendship in an age of polarization? Um, you know, all these kinds of, of questions. Um, and I'm talking about, a lo- you know, a lot of the time about themes from my book, Must Politics Be War? Which, you know, I'm in the throes of promoting, but there's actually going to be a sequel to the book that I'm finishing up now and will come out with Oxford uh, at the end of next year called A Liberal Democratic Peace, Creating Trust in Polarized Times. That book gets really knee-deep in the trust data to try to look at the kinds of policies that will actually promote trust and reconciliation. I talk about these in the first book, but in the first book, I'm more interested in just trying to convince people that it's even possible to have a regime that's mutually acceptable to all. So it's more of just like a a proof of concept in a certain kind of way, which I think philosophically is extremely important. But um, the data, the detailed look at the data by institution, how does freedom of association promote trust? How do markets promote trust? Those are the things that are going to be the sort of heart of the next book. So it's very much a book of philosophy, politics, and economics. So that's what I'll be doing uh, there. And there are other projects that will come along. I mean, I'm probably going to do a popular book on religious freedom uh, for Rutledge. So um, yeah, a number of number of things, a uh, number of things going on that I'm somehow supposed to all do while I have uh, three kids under six. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've done well so far and I, oh, yeah. I continue to expect great things. Thank oh, you, man. Kevin, for being with us. Yeah. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook, 
titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.